to do this talk last year, I wasn't entirely sure what to speak about. It's going to be about Santiago Sierra largely. And then in between um, Anna Adele's action, I think it, if you can call it an action, has um, intervened. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about Art's encounter with the law, thinking about what these two works, the counter, death counter of Santiago Sierra and Anna Adele's project suggest. I mean, Clearly they're both related to death, and maybe there's an underlying meaning there in some way that the law is also linked to death. Certainly if you work in the law, you probably feel death at some of the time. So I wanted to think about this question of the project of Anna Rodell, and I think you probably know the fact better than I do, of the su- I mean, it's, it's an untitled event as far as I know, so I've called it Suicide Project, although fake suicide project. Let me briefly tell you about Santiago Sierra's death counter, because that's a project I worked on, and then we, you have a sort of map to think of the differences, perhaps, between these two works. And I'm going to then try and think about the relationship between art and law, and different models of, of art production and distribution, and how they interact with law. Um, I mean, clearly, the relationship between art and law is a, is a, is a very is a very old one, one of sort of ambivalence and power struggles, and the law is often seen as a constraint um, by artists, a constraint on the way in which images function and opt within our society. And I think law, the Anna Dell project reveals the deep power of art to, to, to sort of disrupt collective social moral beliefs. And um, I will link that to the kind of what I call the transgressive project. So anyway, Sierra's Death Counter, this is a project that I've been involved with um, with a colleague, um, Lisa Rosenbaum, who's a curator based on the only Gottby, Dublin, sorry. Um, we produced this project, uh, which runs all year, um, in London, and it's, it's, it's a contract, essentially. It's a contract between Sierra and um, an insurer, an insurer called Hiscox, which is based right in the city. This is the, in the background, you can see the Lloyd's Insurance Building, and um, Santiago's idea was to make an exchange um, of his life insurance for one year, so he, w- he would have a life insurance insured against his life, in which if he dies, his wife would be the beneficiary. Um, in exchange, he would loan for one year um, Hiscox, um, a, a, a counter, a sculpture, which counts all the people who die in the world every second. And the total, this is New Year's Eve um, this year, and then it will carry on right the way through to the end of the year and with a projection of around 55 million deaths. It's very important for Santiago in making this kind of transaction to to link the value of his own life to the value of the artwork. It's monetary value of the artwork. So you have this whole sort of relationship between different forms of labour, the commodification of labour, and of course speculation, speculation on his life, whether he'll live and die, speculation which is part of the insurance business, and then of course the relationship between those who die and those who aren't insured, and the kind of division one has, one can see between those who benefit and those who don't, which is a frequent theme of social exclusion in, in Santiago's work. Um, so he used the form of the contract to, 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 to generate this project, and I think it's a project which links the kind of operations of law, art, commerce, death, if you like, the death industry, very elegantly in a kind of unfolding work, a work that unfolds over time. To go back, now, Anna Rodell's work, I think, is very different, and I think stands right at the opposite spectrum, perhaps, from Santiago's, in that it involves something, it's not a complete, and we still don't know what it's going to be, I think the exhibition opens next week, so it's hard even to describe what is the work, what is the work is one of the sort of questions perhaps of the project, and it's a shame that this talk isn't two weeks later, because I might have some more insights into at least defining it in relation to something which is more articulated, Um, but clearly the notion of making a performance in an action in public space which has direct social, legal, um, moral consequences where the, the, the artist was interned in a psychiatric ward part of, and then released um, as part of the project and the, the, the continuation, perhaps the two acts, the actual act on the bridge 
and then the act, the, the, the hysterical act within the, set, the psychiatric ward. These have caused this has caused considerable controversy in in, in, in in Sweden and pushed this question of how far public funds to artists should be used and channeled in this way, particularly if the law is being infringed. Um, in England, I think two laws would possibly more would be provoked, as it were, in this kind of action. Um, one deals with the false information given to a person's safety, and another one is a common law offence which we have called outraging public decency. Both these offences are criminal, and they don't necessarily, it's not clear what scope there is for artistic intentionality or artistic freedom of expression to be used and draw upon, and I think um, what's interesting in this project is you have a sort of transgression which is not, it's very difficult for a kind of public to read and even maybe for the art world to codify within a system of art and I think one of, one of, one of the things I'm going to talk about in this talk is that when art has been provoked into it, it when art deals with encounters with the law and there have been trials involving artists, art uses art as its own defence and it uses artistic criteria but it would be quite interesting to see in this case what the defence would be. We don't know what the defence would be. So I'm going, I think there are sort of three models of the art law encounter, and I want to talk about these, map these out. And I think Anna Adele's project belongs to what I would call a transgressive model, and the, the transgressive model links to the violation of social, moral. Um, boundaries which are often codified legally involves the intervention at some point of the state and transgression I think is where you have the visibility of art perhaps in its most public form um, art perhaps it becomes most publicly visible when it's either iconic or when it's iconoclastic and it's when it's in between those extremes art probably is sort of perceived and consumed by people within the art world or perhaps a slightly wider public, but these moments of transgression both out, out, enable art to out, reach out to a much broader audience. But then that also begs the question of why do these moments of transgression occur? I mean, time and time again, one finds with artworks which are considered to be transgressive in one context that they're completely ignored in another context. And it, it, and it seems that it's the matrix within a sort of social cultural structure and also the role of the media and the spectacle that enables transgressive artworks to be transgressive. So I think the key to the transgressive artwork is also this, the role of society and the public at large. And it's very, I think it's very important to think about these interrelations. So on the one hand, we have the transgressive model, and I'm going to look at tra trials in which transgressive artworks have been involved because trials are perhaps the most visible form of the encounter between art and law. That's when the, who decides what is art and what artists can do becomes visible in, 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 in socially and culturally. And the trial is a very peculiar ritual for which art's judge. Um, as we'll see, the judgment of art in itself is one in which the law feels deeply ambivalent and unhappy about and often defers ironically to artists. So you have this sort of balance going on Protection is what I call the second model. Now, I think artists call upon the protection of the law frequently, um, and this often affects the distribution of artworks. And there are laws, for example, dealing with artists' rights, moral rights, copyright, etc., um, in which the, the protective guise of the law is called upon. Um, and then the other model I want to discuss is what I call the operation model. Now, I think this is very important in a sort of range of practices which have developed over the last two decades. In, and, I, and I put Santiago Sierra within this framework of the operation where really it's a kind of it, there's a reflection on the conditions of the law but more than that the conditions of the artwork and it, in thinking about the social economic rules and conditions of the artwork the law can be inflected and played with and its circularities and contradictions can be exposed and I think this idea of the law doesn't necessarily involve the acts of Violation or unlawful acts. And so the notion of art as a con the notion of the law as a constraint becomes a bit more slippery and difficult in the operational um, model. And um, I mean, I don't want to say that these models. I mean, these are sort of constructs which I think are quite helpful to thinking about the encounter. And I don't want to say that they're you know artworks ne necessarily fall within one or within the other. 
Um, I think Lars Vilks, I'm sure you're familiar with Lars Vilks, um, another creative Swede. Um, he, his work, I think, can fall into both categories very well. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of Ninis, his project, um, where, you know, like this, this, this was, what was the island called? Is it Kulik, um, Kullerberg, He, it's an ongoing project, and it involved a, you know, a criminal offence of, of, of breaching, um, national conservation law. And eventually this work was supposed to be dismantled and was, it was ordered to be, but then they were, uh, it, it never became enforced. And he, he played, Wilkes played with the whole operation of the law. He broke the law, but he created the kind of edifice to the kind of perhaps the inability of the law to enforce itself fully, thankfully, upon society at large. And this monument, in the, in the end, is a sort of monument perhaps to the failure of the law somehow. There he is, standing proudly at the top of his construction. And I think Joseph Boyce was uh, at one stage acquired the work, which again made it very difficult for um, because he then became a foreign property owner and a very famous artist. These moments of resistance within Vilk's project to the law were very, very um, very interesting. Lisa Rosenbaum um, has written a very good essay about this in Trials of Art, the book I edited, which I would recommend you read. So Lars' project, I think, gets to the point that, you know, transgression and operation, operation don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, so what are the main elements of transgression? Well, transgression is linked, I think, and I think, like, the art law relationship, in a sense, to religion and to, to St. Paul talks about laws may be there to be transgressed in scriptures, and the notion of law... The notion of art being and images being a battleground goes right through from the sort of Byzantine iconoclast right through to today, and perhaps even, you know, in a strange way, Anna Adele's a kind of descendant of that. I think in a modern age, the, the notion of transgression is linked deeply to modernity, and perhaps perhaps three senses in which you can see transgression: the breaking of artistic norms, the breaching of social moral taboos, and then the violation of legal rules. Um, particular legal offences involving transgression include blasphemy, um, which often is the form called in, in Germany and Austria defaming religious institutions, which is a very specific offence, obscenity, indecency, flag desecration, criminal damage, intellectual property law infringement. I mean, the, the point I think about this is the sort of way in which art engages with the symbolic. Um, and, and certainly in Anna's case, I think her use of the body is interesting too, the kind of, it's often the body is a site of resistance or the physical in which, in which social moral taboos are kind of, are transgressed. Andre Serrano's Kiss Christ, I think, is a good example of a transgressive artwork which caused outrage and two occasions both in the United States leading to the culture wars where one of the senators, um, D'Amato, ripped up this photograph from the Senate and then there was a huge movement with the Republican right to change the way in which the National Endowment for the Arts was founded to prevent the exhibition of this type of artwork, which eventually was constitutionally challenged in the United States. But the, the Piss Christ is a good example of a kind of a, a, a transgressive offence which goes right the way back perhaps to, you know, to the Byzantine and to Plato's own hostility to images. And um, the, the notion here of a kind of, a, of an act which is anterior to the actual image itself, the act of smothering Christ and piss, and also the formal complexity of the work and its beauty, I think, created, is, a, is an example of a good example of a transgressive work, that often transgressive works are very formally accomplished, I'm also thinking of Mapplethorpe, and yet, in terms of their content, they can be very, very shocking, and it's often that dichotomy between the formal and the content, which art, I think, the transgressive art is at its most powerful and successful. In that respect, I find it harder to locate on a radar's project, perhaps within the traditional transgressive framework. So the transgression, I think, really um, calls into mind two very important questions. I mean, does art transcend legal judgment? I mean, certainly transgression art, I think, sees itself in some fundamental sense of being above and beyond legal judgment. And um, so in a sense, any, there can be any crime in the commission of art. Um, there's a nice anecdote from um, Benvenuto Cellini in Vasari's Lives of the Artist in the Renaissance when Cellini said that it would be justifiable to torture a man to death 
this produced a great sculpture in the form of Michelangelo, for example. So that's possibly where we find the crystallization of this idea of the aesthetic being transcendent. And I think it's something that plagues even discussions now, it's worth thinking about of how far we latch on to that idea when within the art world, within the art system, that somehow art is an ulterior value. That if there's not a comedian point in which art stands outside the, the social, the political, and the legal. And um, it's perhaps that idea which also should be questioned, and maybe operational aesthetic works are more complex and nuanced in their relationship to the legal and a straightforward or naive state expression of, of transgression. Um, paradoxically, there's perhaps also another element of transgression which calls very, in its very active, active violation for legal censure. And how Foster's discussed this quite, uh, quite at length. And he talks about this sort of idea of invoking a paternal authority figure under the law in, in order for, 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 the, for the transgressive project to be completed. And he's, he's actually um, sort of questioned the validity of that. And I think it does call into question. So, but it also suggests, I think, the kind of complex thing work that's at stake, that just as the art violates, the, the art also perhaps is validated through the final kind of closure, which is the legal judgment. That legal judgment does something that aesthetic judgment can't do, which is it, there's a finality, ultimately, with the law. And the finality of the law is also the finality of state, the finality of power that that Franz Kafka talks about, for example, in the trial, that ultimately the state can coerce the body, I think. And so in, in a strange way, the, the, the power of the law is also the power of, of the subjugation of the body at some fundamental point through punishment. And I think that's also the fascination for perhaps for artists, that is a sort of, that's the ultimate constraint upon freedom, is that they're kind of, and that's the end of, sort of, that's the end of aesthetic indeterminacy, in is the closure of, is the closure of law. So I'm going to talk a bit about, very briefly, about some trials involved in transgressive artworks. And I think it's, this is just a sort of map which I discuss also in my book, The Trials of Art. And um, it's all, I think it's important to place transgression within a historical context, partly because these sort of eruptions within society are actually quite rare. I mean, there are very few trials involving artists in history where artwork has been the subject of the trial and art's been, it's, art's been in dispute. I mean, and also, I mean, it's interesting that in a, sen- in a strange way, just as li- in, in totalitarian societies, these kind of moments don't really exist. I mean, they're something which are not, they weren't showcase trials of artists during the Soviet Union, for example, under Stalin, because it wasn't really an important part of the kind of social structure. It wasn't necessary for the state to do that. In fact, if anything, the state would want to conceal that. And I, mean, and I think also, so I think there's a relationship to transgression of Western liberal democracy is an interesting one, but it's important to understand that these are sort of very rare kind of boundary moments where the, the boundary between art and law has been, been negotiated and there are sort of ruptures um, which, which occur in, in relatively infrequently, and I know I think there are also specific con- cultural reasons, often, for example, involving the rise of religion now, which can explain part of this. So I'm going to begin with Veronese's Feast in the House of Leve, because Levi, which is an early 16th century trial, and I think this trial is very interesting because it's really the first trial from my research and from other people's research where the artist, the notion of artistic intentionality was voiced or raised as a kind of defence to the artwork for the first time. Now this work, which is I think it's in belongs in the Academia, Academia in, in Venice, was originally commissioned for a church in Venice in the mid-16th century. And the Venetian, um, it's not a very good slide, I apologise, but it, what the, the idea in the commission originally was that this was a um, it was going to be a form a Last Supper. It's a commission for the Last Supper. This is the time during the Reformation when the Catholic Church and the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church became very, very aware of the power of images and also the policing of images. And this in painting is very controversial for a number of reasons, partly because of the presence of baboons and other figures within the scene which shouldn't have belonged there, as well as apparently German-looking paint um, figures next to Christ, which denotes made a connection with Protestantism. And the, the Catholic, um, the, 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 the Venetian Inquisition ordered an inquiry 
And during the inquiry, Veronese was asked to, for the first time, an artist was asked to explain why they had made an artwork in this way. And he argued that he had the license, license of madmen and poets, artists have the license of madmen and poets, and there should be latitude for artists to have discretion to interpret canonical biblical subject matter. And the, uh, the, the Inquisition disagreed, but the Inquisition didn't order the painting to be destroyed. What they did is they simply asked Veronese to rename it. So he renamed it Feast in the House of Levi rather than the Last Supper, and that changed the register in which the painting belonged, and that was perfectly acceptable um, as a perfectly acceptable solution to the, um, to, for, for, for the Inquisition. And I mean, that, that I find fascinating for lots of reasons, which I discuss also in the trials of art. It's, it's a very, very important trial because it's the first time that you see oh, the kind of the notion of artistic intentionality brought into the courtroom. So I'm going to jump a lot further now to George Gross's trial. Um, this was made, Jesus in a Gas Mask was part of a trial which, was, which took place in 1928, an ongoing thing that went on for three years where Gross was, it was his third prosecution actually, was prosecuted for um, the defamation of religious institutions under the Bible Republic. Now, eventually, he was acquitted, although this, this one work, Jesus in a Gas Mask, was ordered to be destroyed. And this was a very controversial work um, during the Vama Republic, and so it was seized upon by the Nazis. Now, Grace, in his trial, also, in some ways reminiscent of Veronese, spoke again of the importance of artistic interpretation and talked about the horrors of the First World War and necessity of showing Christ in this way, which wasn't really fully accepted by, by members of the court. Um, then there are the Feeney's actionists. I don't really want to dwell on that too much, although I think there are parallels between the um, work of the Feeney's actionists and Anna Rodell. Um, Mark Morrill's hanging flag, I think, was interesting because this is another example of a prosecution which um, eventually it went to Supreme Court and Morrill was a Morrill's dealer who exhibited the flag was acquitted. But his former for trust that flag followed made by Morrill, who was a US Marine, caused great controversy because flag desecration is an offence and it was an offence in the US until it was made unconstitutional. And so I think this, 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 this again is another example of how um, you know trials and disputes can occur where artists seize upon collecting subject matter which has symbolic function, symbolic value and collective kind of recognition like the, the national the, the, the nation's flag or the or the religious symbol. Right, another type of work and another type of trial. This is Robert Mapplethorpe's self-portrait. Um, his, um, this was one of the th three images of a, um, from an exhibition that was, um, was a huge controversy in Cincinnati shortly after Mapplethorpe's death. Uh, it was in 1981, and it led to the um, Dennis Barry and the curator, other curator of the Cincinnati Art Museum being um, prosecuted for obscenity under, under, under Ohio law. Um, this was an interesting trial because it was the first, possibly last real moment, I think, of the attempted criminalisation of art within with Western liberal democracies. And there really hasn't been anything which is sort of of that kind of magnitude since. Um, and it was very interesting during the trial because this work of Mapplethorpe's, which I think is quite self-explanatory where the, the whip is going, <laughs> Um, this work and another work of a young girl um, spreading her legs called Annie were, 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 were very controversial works and um, the, arg the, the argument which was brought in the trial was that basically they were obscene. Now, obscenity law is, is very interesting because obscenity law is based on this idea of corruption, corruption of the audience, um, corruption of the great degradation of the audience um, through subject matter, for example, sexual subject matter. And um, one of the defences for um, in obscenity law is the idea that, that the obscene work can be somehow redeemed because of its of artistic merit or value. So even within obscenity law, which in a sense is a kind of moral law, moral law of society, there's a kind of recognition and latitude for artistic expression. And um, in this trial, the Mapplethorpe trial, the curators were acquitted by a jury. Now, the jury had never seen artworks before. They weren't aware of the conventions of Western art. But the, 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 the defence, um, Mapplethorpe's defence, in a sense, created a kind of artistic 
tour throughout history in which they, pre- they ex- examined and explained how art functions. And one of the things they talked about, which is very true of Mapplethorpe as well, was the kind of formalist defence, the idea that the formal qualities of the artwork, the composition of the artwork, the make it of aesthetic value and that in itself transcends the content of the work so there's this kind of schizophrenia between aesthetic formalism and, and kind of pornographic or shocking content um, Jeff Keane's string of puppies I'll talk about this later, that's a copyright dispute which involved Jeff Keane's and he infringed a he copied a photograph by Art Rogers of a, German, of a couple of hobby groups of German puppies and it went to, it went to um, there was ongoing litigation in the States and he argued it was a parody and failed. I mean, that's, it's also, in such a property law, it's also a form of constraint upon artistic expression, which is important, although it's slightly different from the main type of criminal offences. And obviously, in this proceeding, it was one type of artist in the way photographer bringing the case against Jeff Coons. So I think within transgression, there are three main types of defences. Um, I, these have been helpfully identified by a writer called Anton Julius, who's actually a lawyer, a very good lawyer. I, I work, formerly worked with him. And he wrote a book called Transgression. And he, he discusses this idea of um, three main defences. And interestingly, these defences were deployed, we've seen them deployed in most of the important trials, for example, the Mapplethorpe trial. And the formalist defence is a, a defence which purely looks at the form of the artwork and says this form of the artwork is sufficient in itself to, in a way, exempt, give it artistic merit and exempt it from the operation of the law. So, for example, in, in, I just discussed the Mapplethorpe case. Um, the economic defence is slightly different. What it does is it kind of places um, an artwork which looks unfamiliar within the kind of context of art history and it relates it to former precedents within art history and explains that, how, how it relates to artworks of the past. Finally, the estrangement defence looks at the, 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 the kind of estrangement of art, the value of art being part of its shock value, and, it's, and it, the notion of estrangement is that art in that has to shock and estrange its audience, and then at some point in the future that type of shock will be accepted by audiences. I mean, in a sense, all of these defences, I think, are premised on an idea that ultimately art's somehow autonomous, and it should be free to judge itself according to its own rules and criteria. Um, I and mean, what is interesting is that even within transgression, the law kind of accepts this in its, in, to some extent itself. For example, with obscenity, you have the artistic merit defence, which is connected to, which, it, which in a sense of, it gives a space, a legal framework for these defences to operate. Um, also, with um, defamation, you have freedom of expression and when artistic expression is invoked, then these defences will come in. So, and also with blasphemy as well, for example, there's a trial involving Serrano, which, which was in, in, in Australia, which was brought by the Catholic Church. And again, formalist defence was, was used, so the actual beauty of the, of the Serrano's artwork was, 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 was looked at. So transgression, I think, is, raises this question, is how relevant is the transgressive project? I mean, comparing Adele's fake suicide to Burden's shoot, for example, which is a real work activated with real danger, where his ophthalm was shot by a, shot, so, uh, uh, um, a shooter in, in, the, in the gallery, I think is a really relevant thing about the, the, the territory of transgression. But in a strange way, perhaps Adele's, and this is a thing thought to think, reflect on the Finally, maybe Adele's project, in some senses, is it functions or is more successful than Burden's because, although it, in some ways it refers back to it, and that's certainly a canonical way of looking at it, it also has reached society in a way that, or Swedish society, in a way that Burden's shoot hasn't, which I think is interesting. So I'm going to move on to what I call the protection model. Now, I think the protection model is is very interesting because. Artists in the art world seek legal protection, and I think this particularly applies to the exhibition and distribution of art rather than the production of art. So it's not that art being used for production, it's more that law is relied upon to protect artists within the distribution of art. And I think main types of protection one can think of are things like copyright law, moral rights of the artist, the artist to be the copyright protectors, the art, the, the, the reproduction of the artwork, etc. Moral rights means the right of the author to be recognised as the author of the artwork, the right to object to the derogatory treatment of the artwork, 
Brother Sweets is the kind of resale royalty rights that are now that we have across the EU. Um, so contractual property rights, as I'm spelling, contractual property rights deal with rights of the artists, and I've worked on this whole area. I mean, contracts have become very important in conceptual art. I mean, before, but interestingly, the artist contract, which was created by Seth Seagull and Bob Pajansky in 71, was a, was a framework, a way of trying to empower artists and deal with the way in which artworks are owned and ownership of conceptual art is transferred, and also with the way in which artists benefit economically when the artwork is resold. And I think it's interesting here is that within this sphere of protection, there's a whole very sophisticated legal structure which somehow recognises that artistic works and art, the art system is a different system, it's a different economic system, it's a different cultural system, and that's reflected within the law. And then it's also reflected in, for example, import tax exemptions. Now, there's a very famous trial with, um, which I'm going to talk about, which is the Brancusi trial, Bird in Flight. And this was a trial which took place in 1928 when Brian tried to import burden flights into the United States. Now, this was the customs, in this, the, the customs officials originally said this was, an, it was a utilitarian artifact. Artifact was made out of bronze, they couldn't recognize it as an artwork. This was the 1920s, it's an abstract work. And the issue in the trial was whether it could be recognized as an artwork. And um, in this trial, or particularly a sculpture, because under the Tariffs Act in 1922, certain types of um, sculpture were, sculptures were exempt from taxation, so the, the importer wouldn't have to pay the tax on the very valuable materials which were being imported into the United States. So there's this huge trial involving Brancusi in which different witnesses appeared on behalf of Brancusi, like Edward Steichen and um, Jakob Epstein, and they were asked to define why it was a sculpture. And they talked, they gave different reasons. They talked about the abstract qualities of the bird. They talked about the expressive autonomy of the artist. They also spoke of the qualifications, the curriculum vitae of Brancusi. Um, to defend the argument against the bird being a sculpture was simply that it didn't look like a bird. <laughs> but even in the 1920s, that looked a bit outdated. Um, and finally, the judge at the end, Justice Waite, said, well, you know, look, um, I don't know really whether it's an artwork or not, whether it's a sculpture, but the art world thinks it is, and important people think it is, so therefore we should accept that it is. And so it was categorised as a sculpture. And um, I find that very fascinating because it, it exposes perhaps how art and law are more closely connected as one thinks, because there's a kind of judicial moment within that within the artistic recognition, within the way in which institutions codify and value artworks. And it's interesting that the law doesn't want to decide at that point. Judges are notoriously reluctant to decide what is art. So there's a kind of underlying principle of what's known as aesthetic neutrality throughout the law, and this also applies to the, tra the trials of transgressive artworks. So the, art, the lawyers and judges famously say that it's not their role to decide what is art and that they're not equipped to decide what is art. And when art is in dispute in the courtroom, art experts are invariably called in to help arbitrate. So there's a kind of delegation of expertise um, by lawyers to the art world, which I think it, it, which is part of the sort of complexity of this interaction between art and law. So yes, Brancusi's sculpture was recognised as a sculpture. Um, that doesn't look so problematic now, and, and maybe that's the point. I mean, maybe Anna, Anna Adele's action will look very clearly like an artwork in 20 years' time. I don't know. So another example of protection is a trial I was involved in last year in England, which was remarkably similar to the Brancusi trial. It was about the importation, this time, of works of video installation by Bill Viola, and whether these could be classified as works of sculpture under UK tax law, which derives from Euro European Union law. Um, so the, the works were like Bill Viola's Angels. I mean, basically, there were five artworks which were disassembled in crates, and the equipment was all shipped in with the DVDs. And the argument of the ship of the people bringing it in in Fort Juvenison is that all of the equipment when disassembled is part of the sculpture. And the UK customs are called HMRC, Homogenous Revenue and Customs. 
And they decided when the work arrived that um, this wasn't sculpture, this was just image projectors. But um, rather unhelpfully, they decided that they were going to tax these image projectors as if they were artworks. So the gallery was a client was asked to pay 17.5% of the value of the Ville Viola as artworks, when in fact they were being treated as forms of video or image projectors. So there's this big dispute about whether or not they, the gallery could benefit from import tax laws because under the import tax laws of the UK and EU, works of sculpture should be treated as being 5%, of having a reduced tax value of 5%. So there was a tax trial, and then this went to the court later, late 2008-2009, and the court said, um, well, actually... Um, we're going to look at the um, evidence of people like Sandy Nen, who's the director of the National Portrait Gallery, and various experts on Viola, and they decided that they were very happy to treat it as sculpture because when the work is assembled, it's three-dimensional, and so that was enough to convince the court that it was a kind of fell within the category of sculpture, and because it fell within the category of sculpture, it was entitled to the exemption. But it was interesting that. Um, the, the evidence of very important art critics and curators was really instrumental also in persuading the court. So structurally, there was a very similar process in the Brancusi trial, sorry, in the, in the Haunted Venison trial to the Brancusi trial. And I don't think that's accidental. I think the way in which art, when it's under dispute, is judged, follows fairly similar principles within Western legal systems. That's what I feel. So, does the law always protect art? Not necessarily. Richard Serra's tilted art was removed after the trial in 1985. And he, this was before moral rights were recognised in the United States. Tilted art, as you know, had been commissioned from New York uh, Federal Plaza, um, caused huge controversy. Um, there was a, a, a hearing in the mid-80s and they asked that to be removed and then the, at the hearing, it was the, the, the General Services Administration who commissioned it, recommended it should be removed. And um, Sarah disputed this, but unfortunately lost in the United States courts. He claimed that his right to freedom of expression had been infringed, which I think it clearly had. But they, there was a public interest, it was said, a public interest in, in removing the sculpture. Now, the public interest is always a way in which or the public order, public morals are one constraint with always within any legal system and freedom of expression, including freedom of artistic expression. How artistic expression is categorised is also interesting because it's not given the same depth as political or depth of protection as political expression, but it's certainly given greater protection than, than other forms of speech, for example, commercial speech. But in this case, it wasn't, it wasn't seen to be worthy of in a balancing exercise over the public interest in removing it, which I think is a terrible decision. So, operation. This is the third model I'm looking at, and I think this is art like Santiago's project that reflects upon the aesthetic, legal, social, political rules, conditions, and institutions. Um, these are kind of artworks that really look at how legal boundaries function and how the law excludes people as in, and looks at dividing the audience rather than necessarily unifying the audience. And I think that's an important distinction of relational aesthetics. I don't think generally the legal isn't really part of relational aesthetics, although there's a very important um, uh, there's an important exception to that, and that's the Anne Lee project, which I think is a wonderful project, which clearly involved copyright law with Pierre Fleek and Philippe Perrino, etc. But the relational aesthetics, I think, is a movement concentrated on the kind of construction of momentary sort of utopian moments or community mo communal moments with participating audiences, for example, in the works of Rick Richard and Egypt. And I, I think this new moment within art, within the operation, is a kind of critique of that. And I think Santiago is very interesting to think about in relation to that. There are other artists as well, like Maria Aishon, with her Public Limited Company for Documentary 11 in 2001. Public Limited Company was a project in which Maria Aishon set up a company which then turned to own, own its own shares on behalf of itself. So it was, it was a company which purchased itself, so it created this kind of bizarre circle, which is this cycle which is permitted within 
within company law, which is a sort of, it's a kind of paradox because no one would normally use a company for that purpose, but using this vehicle to express something of the kind of paradoxical structures of the law. So it wasn't something that infringed the law, it was something that played with the law and used it as an instrument within the production of the final work. Likewise, the Free Beer Project, Superflex, a Danish um, group who did their Free Beer Project 2006, is using source codes as a, and, and using information about beer, the recipes of beer, and disseminating them by the artist with a kind of creative commons license. So that's a kind of different type of utopian project, if you like. It's a sort of social and legal platform. It's using law to create a kind of platform for a different mode of social exchange. I think that's very different from relational aesthetics. And Santiago Sierra warned closing a space at the Venice Biennale 2003, which is a very, very important work where he created, he created this wall inside of the Spanish pavilion, and then it was, the wall was policed by um, immigration officials who would only allow people to enter if they had Spanish passports. And that, again, exposed the operation, I think, um, symbolic level of national laws, of, of frontiers, of boundaries, and the law is a tool of social and ethnographic exclusion. And that's um, where... So I finally want to just talk about my project, Offering Exchange. Offering Exchange is a project I'm doing with Lisa Rosenthal, and there are seven projects, and each project uses contractual framework and the typologies of sites which are linked to arts mediation and distribution of art. So each project has a contract, but it deals with a different type of site. So the first project was by Kerry Young, and she looked at the commercial gallery. Um, Santiago Sierra looked at the um, corporate collection, because Hiscox is also an insurer, it's a collection as well as an insurer. The third and fourth projects are going to be with uh, Maria Eichhorn and with um, Superflex. And um, they're also dealing with different types of space, like the museum, the private collection of Jonathan Monk, the art. We're, we're doing an art magazine project with Superflex. So these are all linked to specific sites in which art's distributed. And this notion of how art's distributed, I think, is where the law ties into the aesthetic. And that's um, a different type of model, very different type of model from the, um, than, than the transgressive. So finally, I think. As I said, I think there are three main models of arts engagement with the legal in the contemporary sphere. Uh, these models are coexistent, um, but the operational model works within, within the legal system. Um, I mean, the fact that these models can all coexist perhaps says something about what Ronciere says about the Palestinian politics, aesthetics, about the kind of the role of the aesthetic and the breadth of the aesthetic domain, and the ability of art within the domain to judge itself according to its own sphere of expertise. Um, where the legal stands within that. Maybe the legal is shrinking in the aesthetic sphere. Thank you. Some questions? Yeah. Are there any known cases where, let's say, the, the um, people from, from the art institution go against artists in, in uh, trials, like where they wouldn't stand up and say uh, that this is within a canon? Well, that's very interesting. Um, I can't I can't think of any offhand. I mean, I think what's interesting is the trial, of course, of Christoph Buschel and the mass murder in the States in 2007, um, where you have an institution fighting an, an artist. And I, that's a terrible precedent for the art world, but that's a, a case of art, artists against curators. I mean, it, it's interesting, sorry, again, is that generally in these trials, and in the Brancusi trial, there were two very obscure art critics who were against Virgin Space. And no one's interested in these critics now. They're not famous people, whereas all the people who sort of stood up for Brancusi in the trial are kind of famous people, like, you know, not all of them, but most of them. And I, and I think that in the trial I was involved in, the Haunch of Venison, the, the, the customs couldn't find one art critic he would stand up and say, this isn't a sculpture by Bill Viola. Although, in a strange way, I wonder whether Bill Viola would regard it as a sculpture. Um, it's clearly three-dimensional in its form and in space, but it, I think generally critics don't tend to back reactionary art world arguments. Have you come across any uh, artworks that are like... Um uh, deals with civil uh, disobedience as a form uh, an expression of art. Uh, something like um, 
von der das ja das äh, 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 der Truck ist is blocking the road for five minutes. And That's a really good question. Let me think about that. I, it's quite, I think it's very really good. Meanwhile, you're thinking, have you heard of the uh, Swedish, uh, uh, oh, we don't really know if it's Swedish, but we think so, uh, artist who, who touches the uh, uh, underground... Um, the graffiti artist. Yeah, no. And you, and you, and yes, I have, yeah. What do I think of it, or? Yeah. I mean, I think that's... Um, There are areas where I think there are certain boundaries which are very difficult for the, for the law to accept or for the law to regulate. And it's interesting when I think they occur within public space often. And I was going to make this distinction more clearly before that. You know, if something occurs within a gallery space or a museum, it's already in a sense of site which is, has, an odd, has its own territory, even though it's, it could be public. In one sense, it's not public. And I think that the real provocations which are probably difficult for the law to assimilate or to deal with will be when they occur within public space or they contest public space, particularly if the law is directly breached, for example, you know, criminal damage, graffiti criminal damage. Now, it's very, I think, they're very difficult for, you know, artistic expression to be invoked in that kind of context, so because property rights would be very, would be clearly recognised. And again, in the Anna Adele case, I think it's very, I don't know how Swedish law works, but in, in under English law, it's a kind of action in public space involving potential, potential crimes. It's quite difficult for, to see what scope there is for artistic expression to be, to come to the defense of that kind of project. Yeah. Here in Sweden, there was a debate as well um, that the galleries are contributing to the, the crime by uh, exhibiting the, work. the, the works. Well, that's also, I mean, I think that's also important because galleries can also be locally liable. And in fact, in, in the Mapplethorpe trial and the Serrano trial, it wasn't the artists who were put on trial, it was, it was the curators or the museum. So they are also linked and, and they're also involved as victims within this. But I think that, you know, institutions have a you know, duty to uphold artistic expression and it should be part of the mandate of, of protecting art. Mm. And sometimes that may have to run against the law. They can't always be on each other's side, art and law. So, okay, what I want to ask you is that don't you think that there is... I mean, you, you presented a kind of theoretical pattern yeah. about how to approach this kind of issues, but... Don't you think that there is maybe some kind of, uh, we should start to have a kind of also economical perspective of what's going on? I mean, what's happening is basically that art is possibly working for the mainstream cultural production very often. I mean, we know that this kind of elements that are considered as aggressive at a certain point, we can find them like a few years later yeah, in sure. mainstream pop culture. So, I mean, for in the case of street art or graffiti and stuff like that I mean today we can see even in Stockholm the, the train for, for the subway completely covered with advertisement we know that this 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 thing to cover trains with uh, pictures is, I mean this is basically a bitter victory probably of the graffiti culture and I mean the same with pornography basically we can find in the past Ten years we can find pornography in mainstream movies. So I wonder if there is some form of subtle exploitation in this kind of process, and that maybe then these uh, legal uh, issues are more related to uh, private interests that clash in some way with cultural production. Or and I would also add that uh, um, also about this uh, thing that has been just mentioned of this graffiti art and these other things that are happening in Sweden nowadays. There is going to be a demonstration the 23rd of May about these issues. I don't know if you are aware of that. I see some friendly faces that, of course, know about it. But so, stay tuned. And unfortunately, I don't have any info with me because I've been just running here. But you should definitely keep your eyes open and join the process. What, of what's the, the process? Way. Sorry, what's the process? It, it's about the relation between art and law because of this... Uh, Uh, recent cases that happened in Sweden. 
So basically, yesterday there's been uh, a good meeting with uh, art students and some people who's working with art galleries and stuff. We uh, launched this uh, demonstrations for the 23rd of May. Basically, I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of people is a little bit shocked uh, that suddenly the uh, classmate that was working nicely on artistic project is on the newspapers as a you know uh, as a criminal and stuff like that. That's it. The question was about the relation between all this and economy. If you think that there, there, there would be another aspect to add to your... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, but, it, but it, are, you, are you saying that the, 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 are you saying that the legal is influenced by economic or... Well, I mean, it, it, no, I'm it's saying also, it's just, I mean, you have to I think, distinguish between types of, I mean, law, I mean, obviously... When a culture, often the media is involved in mobilising scandals and spectacles, and then that can promote the state, for example, to intervene in a certain way. I mean, for example, in you know, it, there wasn't a prosecution in the end, but there was a famous case a few years ago where there's an artist, Tina Gillen, who shows these sort of borderline images of children, and including her own children, which is sort of people thought maybe vaguely child, you know, involved child pornography, and obviously that's a taboo, which is still a taboo. Um, and that led the police to investigating and there wasn't a prosecution but you could see within that scandal the kind of law being manipulated but I think when you think about how law functions in relation to society I think it's very important to also in the theorisation you know, law has its a, and law has a certain degree of autonomy as well I mean law, I mean not I mean it's a complex interaction but Lawyers and judges are not just servants of the people or servants of politicians or servants of the state. So there's a sort of complex field in which law has to mediate between different types of social interest. And its relation to the economic and political also will depend upon the function of the law. I mean, whether it's a criminal law or whether it's a civil law. So civil laws, the dispute within a civil law context between our, involving artists will be very different. Now, intellectual property law is an example of civil law disputes. So copyright infringement is basically a civil law thing. It has some criminal element, but it's basically civil. Well, that's a matter between private individuals. And then the state has to make a decision, and it has to also look at freedom of expression. But basically, you're, you're looking at a very different relationship than a prosecution or that may occur if somebody infringes a type of law which we're talking about maybe with Anna Rodell. So I would say that the, the picture between the economic and the legal is, is quite, it's very, very difficult, and it's, but, it's made, but, it, but it's, com, it's a very complex one, but it's also made more complex by the role of the media within, within that field in relation particularly to transgressive types of artworks, actually. No, no, the case, but the, but the other thing, when I say, if we talk about economics, yeah. if I want to export this chair, and this is the Carl Manstein chair, or the Colbert chair chair, I, have, I can't do it. But if I say, it, it's not a piece of art, it's just a chair. Oh, I see. I, uh, I want to say it the other way, it's not art. So you classify something as non-art, which is actually otherwise understood as art, or could be understood yeah. as art. No, I don't, I don't know what you mean. I wish I did. It, it could be some interest, I mean, in, yeah. in a situation where, where it's not in the interest of the artwork to be classified as art. But to well, it might be in the, I mean, it could help. I mean, for example, in this Bill Viola case, if the work had been imported as image projectors, there wouldn't have been any trial. I mean, it was, it was because it was classified as art that the problem occurred, because it was, you know, if these elements were just classified as utilitarian objects, the import tax would have been very low. I mean, in fact, they were paying a higher import tax by accepting them to be as artworks, which was kind of, but it was good, it was the right thing to do. I mean, in most cases, with, in, when I've been exhibiting in other countries, in most cases, especially art institutions which don't have, art institutions which don't have a lot of funding, try to promote artists sending them, sending their stuff as non-art. I mean, it's a very common practice. <laughs> I think a lot of dealers still take things in their hand, you know, just on a plane, FedEx work, you know. 
And if it's a conceptual artwork, it's not so easy. You can, you know, you can fed it well. You can, you know, put it on a fax or a, you know, internet and execute it the other end. So how do you, how do you import, importing and exporting conceptual artworks when they're purely conceptual? I guess it gets around it. Did this problem occur if you try to import or export valuable objects? But you could be sued before you have stolen something, which is an artwork. If I say it's not, it's not an artwork. It's a piece of stone I found. It is come from Parthenon. It's an artwork. It protects the Bible. Well, I think the world is about classification. Yeah. But so is art, too. Do you have any uh, reflection on the Muhammad drawings? I mean, that's a clash not against the law, but a very strong... Well, it is a law. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, I think under Danish law, there's a... There's a it, it was a... There's an there's a anti-blasphemy law about insulting religious community, and those laws, I think that, um, you know... It, it can infringe a law. I mean, I think what the European Union, I mean, what the European Court of Human Rights will give a lot of latitude to freedom of expression. And I think it's very, very hard for an artwork to, you know, be, for, for there to be criminal penalties anyway for making an artwork like the Mohammed cartoon. And that's completely right. I don't think it should be. So I think there should be license. I mean, I, and I think one of the battlegrounds is between art and religion. Yeah. And the, that's a repeated one, but it's usually within. It's in it's certain states, for example, in Russia, you had it in 2005 with the Zakharov Museum, where the curators were prosecuted under Russian law for, for blasphemous libel. So, but I mean, I think within a Western liberal democracy, that's that's offensive to think that anybody who did something which was, you know, that shocking to a religious community could be imprisoned for it, even or even fined actually or injunctive. I don't think it makes sense in the kind of society we live in. But then again, that's my that's just my personal opinion. One last question. Maybe this is not a good one. <laughs> it's about the copyright situation of the internet for artists. Right. Um, could you I mean the good and bad aspects of it? Could you comment on that? What about copyrights or Yeah, on the internet, how how it affects that because it could be good as well as bad to restrict um, well, I think it's interesting you said that. I should have made it a, a clear in the talk. I mean, I think one of the problems with any form of censorship, and this is one of the problems with when the law tries to regulate art, I mean, I think the judges and the state have realised that it could be self-defeating, that as soon as you try and, you know, prohibit something, or it, it increases its circulation. So all of the trials within obscenity laws, in a sense, have been completely self-defeating. And in a way, there's a parallel of that with the internet, that... On one level, you know, the internet can't be regulated. The internet poses a huge challenge to copyright law because it's, it allows for reproduction beyond any degree of control. But there is a paradox as well because copyright in some form of some form is probably justified as a stimulus or an incentive for creators to produce cultural goods. So I, I think copyright, you know, I don't believe that you can get rid of copyright. I think copyright has some valid basis, but it's just completely dis, dis, disfigured by how it functions within our society because you have corporations owning copyright for like 70 years plus the lifetime of the author, which is, has no rationale. But, you know, even Chomsky sort of acknowledges that some form of copyright is probably necessary in order to stimulate cultural production and provide an incentive to people and to protect authors who create works. And that was supposed to be the original basis of copyright law. But I mean, the problem is the internet. It's a fundamental challenge to that. Have you seen any innovative um, constructions? Um, like, how you could deal with Innovative constructions, how you could deal with that problem? Because well, what do you mean? I mean, I think people who have copyright left have thought about things like Creative Commons, for example. You know, Creative Commons, which is like a kind of voluntary copyright system where you license your work according to certain terms, but basically it's a system where others can use your work free, but there are certain forms of acknowledgement, for example. You have to acknowledge that you're relied upon that material, because I think 
sometimes authorship and authorial acknowledgement is very different from the strict property right, so it's more of a moral question. So that's important. And then under, under, under the collective license, then you can also make certain um, rules about how your work is used. So you, you, for example, you could make sure that your copyright wasn't used in a way that was degrading to women or to black people or you know, to members of ethnic minorities or whatever. So, or it wouldn't be used by racists. So you could stop that there are certain terms and conditions to allow the creative circulation of work. And I kind of like the idea of the creative commons. I think that's a very good model.